Well, something cried if I had my way. Well, something cried if I had my way. Well, something cried if I had my way. Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's Tuesday, August 4th, 2020, just two days past the birth date of James Baldwin. The title of our opening song from the compilation album Mississippi Saints and Sinners, If I Had My Way, I'd Tear This Building Down, serves as an epigraph to Baldwin's 1972 masterpiece, the essay collection No Name in the Street, which features heavily in our program today. From another country, James Baldwin's Witness of America. Born on August 2, 1924 in Harlem, James Baldwin would light out for the old world in 1948, moving to Paris, France with $40 in his pocket. This move was, according to today's guest, an effort to reconcile what Baldwin called the mystery of his sexuality. He later told an interviewer of his state of mind before leaving the U.S. I no longer felt who I really was, whether I was really black or really white, really male or really female. Joining us to discuss the arc of Baldwin's witness, from Harlem and Greenwich Village to Paris and Istanbul, is Bill Mullen, author of a new biography from Pluto Press titled James Baldwin, Living in Fire. And as a witness, Baldwin brings us closer to understanding multiple revolutions from the 50s through the 80s and on to our own moment. From the free Cuba movement and anti-colonialism to black power, feminism, and gay and lesbian liberation, as well as the ongoing struggle against the occupying force that is the police, and how much of this can be tied to white supremacy and Christianity, two extremely oppressive forces in the world. In his book, Mullen shows how Baldwin's life is, quote, a bracing testimonial to being the first African-American radical to make his sexuality an integral aspect of his public attack on racism, sexism, homophobia, and more generally, the matrix of repressive American power both domestically and internationally, unquote. Bill Mullen is professor of American studies at Purdue University. He is the co-editor with Ashley Dawson of Against Apartheid, the case for boycotting Israeli universities, Haymarket Press, 2015, and he's the author of W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line, from Pluto Press in 2016. We begin with Black Lives Matter as the impetus for Mullen finding his way back into the necessary work of James Baldwin. And now, from another country, James Baldwin's Witness of America on Interchange on WFHB. Samson don't spell the lion's back. No, my daddy, Miss Arbor Stone. I started doing work on Baldwin and teaching Baldwin again around 2012, 13, 14, as the Black Lives Matter movement was surfacing. I was pulled back into his work because I remembered how often he wrote about policing and police violence. It was kind of a through line, in, uh, especially in his nonfiction. And of course, he grew up in Harlem. 
He knew the police intimately. He says he was knocked on the ground when he was 10 years old by a couple of New York City cops, and it was the first time in his life he'd ever kind of thought about race and politics at the same time. And everything that Baldwin sort of said and predicted about the long-term effects of policing in black communities, which he referred to as occupying forces, that that was his term for, for the role of the presence of police in places like Harlem and Detroit, kind of just burst forth as reality, you know, after the death of Trayvon Martin and then Michael Brown and the Black Lives Matter focus on on exactly that question of what does it mean to be occupied by the police? And in fact, you know, there were public tributes being paid to Baldwin by the Black Lives Matter movement almost immediately when it started. So it just seemed to me that it was kind of like rediscovering the present to go back and read his work again. That was my impetus, was to kind of re resurface the entire James Baldwin, the, the James Baldwin who did tell us so much about what looked like a new kind of crisis of race in the United States after 2012, and obviously which is going on full bore to this moment. It's one of the interesting things to me that that period of that essay, The Fire Next Time, which is you know smack in the middle of uh, the March on Washington and um, civil rights uh, as it's progressing at the time, is that it marks for me one of the three books of that particular era that seemed to me to, to go together into our current moment. Um, uh, besides uh, The Fire Next Time, which uh, had one part of the essay published in The New Yorker in 1962, I think the other part in The Progressive. To me, it kind of matches with uh, Eichmann in Jerusalem, also published in The New Yorker in 63, and that's Hannah Arendt, and then Silent Spring is published in The New Yorker in 63 as well. Those three sort of long essays on what has happened in the world and what will continue to happen in the world unless we stop those things. So those three three books to me sort of stand as prophecy on one hand, but they're obviously histories too, right? They're uh, amazing books to read together and just be sort of smacked in the head by the fact that we've gone nowhere or gone in the wrong direction. You know, The Fire Next Time is for me such an interesting book because Baldwin published it in 63, but for me it pulled together all of these political questions he was trying to resolve really beginning in 1957 when he, he's in Paris and he sees the Little Rock Nine students trying to integrate the school there. And he comes back to the U.S. and he goes south as a journalist and he covers the school integration movement. And then he meets Martin Luther King for the first time and interviews him. And, you know, 1959, the Cuban Revolution happens. He he signs a statement published in one of the New York papers, basically, you know, saying hands off Cuba. Uh, he goes to an African liberation meeting in 1961. He starts to get involved in the anti-colonial struggle. And in 1962, you know, he goes on this remarkable speaking tour for CORE, you know, the Congress of Racial Equality. And he visits campuses all across the United States, basically fundraising for CORE. And it was really clear that his whole life was moving in a profoundly activist direction. And at the same time, as he was trying to figure out his role in the civil rights movement, the nation of Islam is, is emerging, you know, and Malcolm X is, is now is speaking on television as, a, as the voice of the NOI. And he really wants to figure out for himself what's the connection or disconnection between what is basically a grassroots uh, civil rights movement, very much led by students in the South, and, and this guy named Malcolm X who's coming out of, you know, the, the, the Midwest speaking revolution. There is nothing that the white man will ever do to bring about uh, true, sincere uh, citizenship or civil rights recognition for black people in this country. Nothing will they ever do. They will always talk it, but they won't practice it. 
And uh, with the Supreme Court, if the NAACP can tell me that they want a desegregation decision for me uh, 10 years ago, but yet the schools haven't been desegregated, as I say, this is a victory with no victory. Uh, it's a victory that you can talk about, but it's a victory you can't show me. So if you represent the NAACP and you are telling me about this great victory you won for me, when I look at you, I have to uh, conclude that either you have been duped yourself or else you are trying to dupe me. And in most instance, instances where the civil rights struggle is involved, there is no civil rights leader can point to me one concrete gain, practical gain that black people have made in the civil rights field in this country, not only during the past 10 years, but during the past 100 years. Some of us are And that's really the genesis of the fire next time is his his sitting down with Elijah Muhammad and trying to understand what he thinks about the NOI as a kind of counterweight to to the civil rights movement. And it's remarkable because, you know, his first reaction is quite negative. He kind of condemns what he calls black separatism. He thinks the NOI is going to reproduce what he calls black supremacy. But and he writes he writes about this you know, he writes about this in the fire next time. But he's also very clearly kind of torn because he says, you know, you only need to sit down for five minutes and watch Malcolm X speak in a place like Detroit to understand why so many poor black men, especially, uh, see him as their voice. After 1963, as The Fire Next Time is published, as 1965, Malcolm X is assassinated, we get you know, the Watts riots of 65, we get 67 Detroit and Newark, New Jersey, and then 68 King's assassination. And by the end of the 60s, Baldwin has, has moved so far in trying to accommodate what we would now call black power. And uh, I think that The Fire Next Time as a book is really, you know, the predictor of the black power movement. It really mm-hmm. shows us that when he says, you know, if we don't resolve the problem in 63, we're going to have hell to pay in, in 68. And that's really the direction that the, that the movement took, especially after all of the, the political violence against the black movement. So it's, it is, as you say, prophetic. It's also highly historically specific. I think he really saw the cross currents of militancy and especially among young black people who I think were for him, the audience on the subject of the fire next time. It's it's a book about that generation. You know, the generation that he said was braver than his. He said, my generation born in the twenties, we didn't have the courage to do sit down strikes, you know, but these kids do. So uh, my sense is that book is as good a predictor of the way the 1960s unfolded as anything else that was written. You know, it's, it's wonderful to, to mention a book like Silent Spring and to think about how also by the late 60s, you know, the environmental movement is moving very much in, in the direction that Rachel Carson mm-hmm. would have predicted. So um, it's nice to think about those books in tandem. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is from another country. And our guest is Bill Mullen, professor of American studies at Purdue University and author of a new biography from Pluto Press called James Baldwin, Living in Fire. The other day you'd you'd posted something online about uh, or from Baldwin's essay, Talks to Teachers, which I think was published in the Saturday Review in December of 1963. And so this this happens in the same period as well, where he says in part in there, now if I were a teacher in the school or any Negro school and I was dealing with Negro children who were in my care 
only a few hours of every day and would then return to their homes and to their streets, children who have an apprehension of their future, which with every hour grows grimmer and darker, I would try to teach them. I would try to make them know that those streets, those houses, those dangers, those agonies by which they are surrounded are criminal. I would try to make each child know that these things are the result of a criminal conspiracy to destroy him. Every black man born in this country until this present moment is born into a country which assures him in as many ways as it can find that he is not worth the dirt he walks on. Every Negro boy and every Negro girl born in this country until this present moment undergoes the agony of trying to find in the body politic, in the body social, outside himself, herself, some image of himself or herself which is not demeaning. And if you doubt me, you check out your textbooks and Hollywood. I write a lot in the book about the role of education in Baldwin's life, and in particular, one uh, one of the few white teachers he had as a young man who began to take him to, to movies and theater and talk to him about politics when he was about 12 years old and um, had a profound influence on, on his life, kind of, as he put it, started to kind of wake him up to the complex politics of the world in the 1930s. And I think that that essay, her name was Bill Miller, and they remain, they remain lifelong friends. And Baldwin uh, corresponded with her till the end of his life. He was so indebted to her for, as he saw it, transforming his own education into something that had political content and was very affirming of him as a young black boy. So I feel like in some ways, Bill Miller is kind of a specter behind that essay. But also thinking about 1963, Baldwin is, again is talking to teachers who are talking to that generation that is going to make the civil rights movement. You know, right? Those kids who are eight or nine years old, who he says want to need to understand that there is a conspiracy against them. He wants them to be the next you know, one sitting down at the lunch counter. He wants them to be the ones attending the next March on Washington. Whatever was going to be the future of race politics in the United States, it was going to be forwarded by what he called that generation. Now, there's an interesting foreshadowing there, too, because when we look at Black Lives Matter, we, we definitely understand that this is a generational African-American movement, right? There's a whole group of people between 15 and 30 years old right now who have witnessed Trayvon Martin and, and Michael Brown and this police violence. And they're, they're the ones who have kind of taken up the mantle and even rejected some of the you know, conventional wisdom of their elders by going out into the streets. And I think Baldwin would have been actually pretty excited about that. He would have understood that as, as a successful iteration of the ability of young people to see the world and see the world and make it in their own image. Well, he does uh, obviously bring in childhood and youth and the way one is raised, the way the culture raises you, the way the white world raises the black child, um, the idea of being seen in a particular way, scarring you in some sense, right? Of making the, making the person you're going to be. And if you're, if you're raised in a ghetto, then you're, you're a ghettoized personality in a lot of ways. And having to struggle with getting out of that is part of what education means to him. Yeah, and a lot of people listening to the show may know his book, Go Tell on the Mountain, you know, which is his first novel. And it's very autobiographical. You know, it's, it's the young boy who's the protagonist, whose father wants him to become a, a preacher, is very much young James Baldwin. The Harlem setting is very much his Harlem. Um, the, struggle, the struggle with the church 
Interestingly, he was a very effective preacher for a few years, but by the time he finished high school, he just kind of broke with the church the same time he broke with Harlem and decided to go off and become a writer. And embedded in that youthful struggle was the struggle of his sexuality. And when you read the novel carefully, it's very clear he's trying to find a way to articulate to readers and to himself, what did it mean to be a, a young gay black man growing up in a, in a conservative Christian setting in a place like Harlem in the 1930s, which really didn't have a lot of room in its heart for people like him. And so that youthful struggle was, was also something that propelled him out of Harlem into writing, into, I think, you know, the exploration of, of different kinds of identity, not just race, but sexuality in his work. And so in some ways, that autobiographical novel from early on is just another sign of how much he understood the psychological development of the black child as full of portents about not only what the individual could be, but what kind of political role and political positions they might take in society. It's time for a break. This is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On from 1971, which finds its way into Baldwin's 1974 novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. More with Bill Mullen on James Baldwin, Living in Fire, when Interchange returns on WFHB. To bring some loving here today, Father, Father, we don't need to escalate. War is not the answer For only love can comprehend You know we've got to find a way To bring some love and get here today Picket lines and picket signs Don't punish me with brutality Talk to me so you can see Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. In this segment of James Baldwin's Witness to America, guest Bill Mullen describes how Baldwin could claim, if somewhat facetiously, being born black, impoverished, and queer in a white supremacist Christian nation was hitting the jackpot. And then we'll turn to Baldwin's responses to the deaths of Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., and Malcolm X. Everybody thinks Baldwin's life was was a hard one in the first place. You know, one of I don't remember how many children, eight, something like that, and um, being the one who basically raised the children as well as he was the oldest, I believe. Yeah, so he was is uh, for the most part in charge of the home life in a sense, and to to really have to get away from that to also to become something of yourself. He was clearly an artist and seeking to become one to write a self. What you're struck with, uh, what I'm struck with, is the sheer vulnerability that he must have been under 24-7. It's funny, you've almost paraphrased something somebody, a TV host said to him once, oh, you're black, you're poor, you're gay. And the interviewer says, how did that make you feel? And he smiles and he said, well, I felt like I hit the jackpot. 
What's so great about that line is Baldwin's relentless optimism about mm -hmm. the ability of, you know, what I would call oppressed and marginalized people to find their own voice and become important public figures. Speaking about his fiction writing career, you know, after he writes Go Tell on the Mountain, he writes this book that his publisher didn't want him to write and his agent didn't want him to write called Giovanni's Room. And it's this extraordinary book about two gay men uh, falling in love in Paris, one of them an American and one of them an Italian, um, neither of them African-American. And it was such a radical departure from his first novel, which was, you know, set in Harlem and very much about black life in the United States. And yet it was published to acclaim and critical success. It was a landmark of, of gay writing in the United States. I mean, Baldwin took every sort of potential slight or marker of his own marginalization and try to kind of push it back in the face of the world as affirmation, as the representation of complex alternate lives, uh, and never to kind of be cowed. You know, he had this line about nothing can be changed until it is faced, and nothing can be faced until it is changed. And in his fiction and his nonfiction, you see him just taking on the hardest questions, right? And not just the question of the direction of the civil rights movement or the question of what is the role of the nation of Islam, but how does black gay life matter? How does gay life matter in the Western world? So for me, that imperative to dig down deep into the self and, and come up with fiction and non-fictional resolutions of, of conflict was one of his signatures. And I think the other thing, the other element of his political life that is underappreciated, and this goes back to the 60s as well, is his strong perception and opposition to the United States' foreign policies, especially as it related to American imperialism. Uh, he was a, a real strong opponent of the Vietnam War. Um, he was drawn closer to uh, the Black Panther Party and people like Huey Newton, partly because of the Black Panther Party's op opposition to the Vietnam War. Um, when he was in Paris in the 1950s, and I write about this a lot in the book because it's, I think it's been really underappreciated. He, he was confronted with the Algerian Revolution. You know, he's, he's in Paris in the 50s when Algerian independence struggle begins. He goes to jail one, one night in Paris. He's falsely accused of stealing a bedsheet. And he's looking around the jail and he says, man, they're all from North Africa. They're all Algerians. He says, this is a little bit like being in Harlem where everybody, everybody who's locked up is, has a dark face. And that moment of kind of relationship, relationality to Algeria really begins to open up a thread of thinking about his ability as a black man to talk about questions of global capitalism, of imperialism, of empire, of war. And I, I tried to show that this was uh, not an accident in Baldwin's life. It was a long course of study that began for him as a young man uh, and took him all the way through the end of his life. And he writes these profound essays, especially in the, the book 1972 called No Name in the Street, where he really ties together what he thinks of as the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and the way that black folks are domestically repressed within the United States, kind of adopting the argument that the black left had made that to oppose the, the war in Vietnam and to stand with Vietnamese liberation struggle was parallel to standing for black liberation here at home. Well, it, he does make the point, as you say, uh, throughout the, you know, the, the occupied territories of the ghetto in particular, uh, and there is clearly uh, the domestic policy is foreign policy. You know, the, then, as you note, in, in France as well, there's a, a domestic slash foreign policy there, too, with the, the, the 
quote unquote dark other. I think you're familiar with the book he wrote about the what were called the Atlanta child murders, early 1980s, in which we had uh, more than 20, 25 young black boys just begin disappearing in the city of Atlanta and and showing up murdered. And um, he was asked to go down and, and write a journalistic piece about this and ended up writing a book about it. Of course, this is the early Reagan years. So he knew Ronald Reagan as a longtime Cold Warrior conservative with very little love for black people. And when he writes this book about the Atlanta child murders, he wants to make kind of two points in the book. And one of them is that this disappearance of, of young black children in Atlanta and the lack of public outrage about it it's just part of the long history of quiet violence against African-Americans. And he sees it as actually symptomatic of the Ronald Reagan world. And the other point that's quite interesting about that book, and I think is relevant to thinking about the long arc of the United States, was he says, look, Atlanta is now being raised up in the early 80s as, you know, kind of the new black Mecca and the, 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 the locus of this giant prospering uh, black middle class, which it does indeed have. But he says, if you just scratch beneath the surface, you see the fragility of black life quite clearly. You still see it's possible for black children to just vanish. You know, one of his many, many, I think, other skills was his ability to see the implications of economic inequality in all kinds of ways. And to know that just because a few people were going to make it through, many others would fall behind. And I think that's actually another message of the Black Lives Matter movement is we actually did have a black president. But we also had one of the largest uh, social protest movements against racial violence under that black president. And how does one square that circle, right? And that book was uh, Evidence of Things Not Seen. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. I think you note uh, Reagan features in one of uh, Baldwin's poems. Uh, Staggerly Wonders is the name of the poem. It's a very long poem. It's in four parts. I think it's about 17 pages. But uh, Reagan appears in a, in a section along with Duke uh, John Wayne also. Baldwin loved movies. Uh, he wrote a whole book about going to the movies called The Devil Finds Work, which a lot of a lot of people who love James Baldwin don't even get to that book. But he was a film critic, you know. In that poem, he does compare Reagan to John Wayne, and he sees them as two versions of the cowboy, right? And he says, "We're still living. We, meaning you know, people like him, are still living in a wild west." Um, it reminded me of the. the speech he gave at Cambridge when he was debating William F. Buckley. And he said, you know, I loved going to the movies when I was a child. I loved Westerns. He said, it wasn't until I grew up that I realized that the Indian was me. In the case of an American Negro, born in that glittering republic, and in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you. It comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. And so this is like a very big thinker here, right? Talking about the relationship between film and culture and Western iconography and presidents and actors. And he had such a fluent, brilliant, graceful mind. I think he kind of invented, you know, what we now call cultural studies, you know, by by just threading together his personal experiences and his very careful perceptions of all of the different elements of modern life, including including mass media. Has a man gone? 
and name. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is from another country, and our guest is Bill Mullen, professor of American studies at Purdue University and author of a new biography from Pluto Press called James Baldwin, Living in Fire. Let's try to think a little bit about that civil rights era and Black Panthers and Black Power. Obviously, a very, very important time and a very, to say the least, disappointing time. Obviously, and a harrowing time for for people like Baldwin, who's who who was friends with Medgar Evers, assassinated uh, Martin Luther King, assassinated. Um, I don't know if he was exactly friends with Malcolm X, but uh, another leader assassinated. There's a clear period of hope that really turns into that fire that is coming. Yeah, his relationship with Medgar Evers, who was the NAACP organizer who he was very close with and was killed in 1964, was a a real turning point for him, turning him, I think, more firmly in the direction of something like a militant response to to racism, especially in the South. Baldwin was also a playwright. He wrote a fabulous play called Blues for Mr. Charlie, which is really a meditation on the death of Medgar Evers and also Emmett Till, you know, the young black man who was killed in 1955, lynched in the South, just asking the question of how can the Southern civil rights movement contend with such agonizing violence. Malcolm X, by the time he's killed in 1965, they're not the best of friends, but they had begun to be become closer. And uh, after he died, you know, Baldwin wrote a retrospective piece. It's part of his book, No Name in the Street. He says, I look back at the early 60s and there I was on TV basically accusing Malcolm X of, you know, fostering black supremacy. He said, I was, he says, I was like the good Negro in that scenario. And he really understood by the end of the 60s how fundamentally correct um, or at least uh, predictive Malcolm X's own words were about the intractability of race. Power was not going to concede without demand, as Frederick Douglass put it. And I think you see him in 67 and 68 coming around this group called the Black Panther Party and these young men who are exercising their right to bear arms and following cops around Oakland to make sure that they don't shoot black people. And he's he's like, you know what? I think this is what the moment demands. He said, in effect, the Black Panther Party is and Black Power is the correct response to the conditions that we're in. That was an evolution in his thinking. And I really would recommend readers read this book, No Name in the Street, which I think is one of the underappreciated masterpieces by Baldwin, which really is a, a reconsideration of both the civil rights movement in the 50s and the civil rights movement of the 60s, in which he comes to, you know, sort of darker conclusions, which is to say he feels a sense of betrayal. You know, he said when King died, it's not that the movement died, but he said some part of our hope died. And I think he understood hope as political will, the political will to keep marching and keep stepping forward. I argue in the book that one of the things that makes him special is he always said, I, I don't have any choice but to be an optimist. <laughs> he says, I'm alive. And uh, if, if, I, if I give up that, I'm giving up on life. And so No Name in the Street is a book, I think, where he's, you know, he's, he's also moving into, let's see, he's, how old is he when he writes that book? 48 years old. That for him was midlife. Um, he was aware of his own mortality. And I think, you know, there's a shadow of questioning about what has his life as an activist and writer meant too, and what should be his next step. So it's a highly personal, but again, very, very much a public-facing book about uh, about the legacies of the of the 50s and the 60s. Yeah, I think he calls himself at one point the great black hope of the great white father, or he he was beginning to become that. That's exactly his phrase. Exactly. Yeah. I can't be a pessimist. 
because I'm alive. To be a pessimist means that you have agreed that human life is an academic matter. So I'm forced to be an optimist. I'm forced to believe that we can survive whatever we must survive. But the future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they maligned so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger. I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. The question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, north and south, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in north and the south. There's just, you no know, a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But that's, but the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you, the white people, invented him, then you've got to find out why. And the future of the country depends on that, whether or not it's able to ask that question. struggled with depression. Um, he did attempt. He did attempt to kill himself. Uh, he he had um, he had very difficult romantic relationships in his personal life. Um, he struggled with celebrity. I think he he wanted his words and his ideas to be well known, but I think he was sometimes uncomfortable um, being in the spotlight. Uh, there was enormous demands put on him. One of the reasons it took him sometimes a long time to finish his books that he would be on one one hand, you know, traveling as a journalist to cover the civil rights movement, working on a new play, um, going to see another play open in New York, um, lots of requests for interviews, public speaking engagements. It was an exhausting personal life for a, a man who was not always the the most physically strong, um, and and uh, and I think you 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 see in his letters, especially, oh, I was struck um, in his letters from the 1950s. Uh, even when he's about to turn 40 years old, he has these flashes of mortality, which had to do with going back to kind of your original question, this complex young black man growing up gay in a world that was oftentimes just saying, you know, no, we're not going to take you seriously. And as much as he fought back against it, it certainly weighed on him. I think a moment that I do talk about to, to return to the to the late 60s is the way he was vilified by some African-American radicals for his sexuality. Eldridge Cleaver writes these, who was the minister of the Black Panther Party, his awful, awful words about Baldwin in his book, Soul on Ice, basically calling him a race traitor um, and uh, a lover of the white man uh, because of the fact that he was he was openly gay. Those, hurt, those words hurt him a lot. And he wanted, you know, he wanted affiliation with the black power movement. Uh, so... In, in, in all kinds of ways, uh, and I do try to touch on this throughout the book. And every and every moment of his life, his childhood, his adolescence, his 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 going to Paris, which I also think, to some extent, 
was a, was was flying into what he hoped would be some sexual freedom, leaving America. He carried the questions and the and the the baggage right of of, of being queer in, a, in the Western world, oftentimes with a lot of gravity. He also had Huey Newton stand with him, right, or stand with uh, the lesbian and, and, and gay movements at the time. He was close with Huey Newton, and uh, Huey Newton did give a speech uh, where he really himself tried to address homophobia in in the Black Power movement and on the left. Yeah, I think that's the speech you're referring to. Uh, we've had meetings with the homosexual uh, representatives of the homosexual group and uh, also the, uh, the Women's Liberation Front. Now, the homosexual group uh, have been uh, oppressed so uh, much and so badly until uh, it was hard to convince them that uh, the Black Panther Party uh, uh, is relating to them. But uh, we see uh, that uh, uh, homosexuals are human beings and uh, they're oppressed because of the bourgeois mentality and the bourgeois treachery uh, that uh, exists in this country uh, that uh, tries to legislate uh, sexual activity. And I'm, and I'm absolutely sure that Baldwin was the Baldwin Cleaver situation was partly behind his thinking that he needed to do this, and also this emerging gay liberation struggle, which is happening simultaneous with the Black Power movement. Huey Newton says, you know, basically to his black comrades, we we only rise together, uh, we we rise with gay liberation. We don't disparage our basically our gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. It's it's a really important speech too, because you know there is sometimes a tendency to caricature the way the way that say well cleaver contributed to this caricature of overriding homophobia in the black power movement that, that's that would that would not be true you know it's an interesting moment because you kind of see that the ripples in the pond that james baldwin created just by his presence by his stature by his importance because the black panther party knew too how critical he was they were close readers of many things including uh, uh, a book like the fire next time i just found joy i'm as happy as a baby boy with another brand new choo-choo joy when i met my sweet lorraine 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 it's time for another break This is Nat King Cole with Sweet Lorraine, a live performance from 1958 featuring Oscar Peterson on piano and Coleman Hawkins on saxophone. Stay with us for more on James Baldwin as a witness to white supremacy when Interchange returns on WFHB. Now when it's raining, I don't miss the sun Because it's in my baby's smile to think that I'm the lucky one that will lead her down the aisle each night I pray that no one will steal her heart away I can't wait until that lucky day when I marry sweet Lorraine Thank you. 
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our guest is Bill Mullen, author of the new book, James Baldwin, Living in Fire, published by Pluto Press. In our final segment, we'll talk about Baldwin's friendship with Lorraine Hansberry, white liberalism, Israel as an apartheid state, and the soullessness of whiteness as an ideology. Each night I pray that no one will steal her heart away. There were attempts to bridge black um, activists with the white liberal establishment as well. I think you, you speak to those, that meeting with Robert Kennedy, uh, with Baldwin and Lorraine Hansberry in particular. Um, maybe Harry Belafonte was there too. But the point that in the book in particular, Baldwin makes this point as well, that in his brief uh, essay on Lorraine Hansberry, that Bobby Kennedy was the only person that Lorraine Hansberry had no influence over or no effect on, uh, upon. I guess the question I had was, you know, what was their relationship, Lorraine Hansberry and Baldwin's? And it does seem like she's very, very important to him, but I don't know that there's much else written about that. Well, there's a wonderful biography of Hansberry by Imani Perry. I would say a, a full third of it is is devoted to her relationship to Baldwin, and highly highly re- recommend it to listeners of the show. Um, uh, Imani makes a great point, which is that they were they were close in several ways. Um, they were both very very political. I mean, Lorraine Hansberry hung around, was a good friend of W. E. Du Bois and Paul Robeson, and was active in the Harlem left in the late 1950s before she writes her famous play. I'm, I'm talking about Raisin in the Sun. She was herself highly, highly, highly political, like Baldwin was. She was a lesbian. Um, she she married, but then you know divorced and um, struggled privately and publicly with her sexuality. Baldwin knew that, <laughs> and there's no there's no, a Perry Perry does a really nice job of paralleling their own place, you know, in, in the black arts world uh, and in the black queer world of that time. And the fact that she was a playwright meant a lot to Baldwin. He, his first play is written in, in the late 1950s called The Amen Corner. He really, really wanted to be a playwright. He studied acting. He That's how he became good friends with Marlon Brando. He had a real strong interest in theater, but also black theater. He wanted space for black playwrights. And so you can imagine how much it meant to him. And I think it's 1960, 61, when A Raisin in the Sun actually gets produced on Broadway. First um, major play by a black playwright with an all-black cast. Uh, that was enormously important for Baldwin as somebody who was trying to think of the, the different ways black black writers could achieve in the world. And, you know, that their closeness was definitely evident at that meeting with, with Kennedy. And again, I guess maybe this is really needs to be underscored about Hansberry, who I think people, you know, in high school, read a raisin in the sun, and they think, well, this, this was an interesting play. I wonder who wrote it. Well, the woman who wrote it was fiercely committed to civil rights, too, and that's why she was there with Kennedy in 63. And, uh, and this was in particular in response to the, to the Birmingham, the 16th Street church bombing in September of 63, in which the four young black girls were killed by Klansmen who bombed the church. And it almost set Baldwin over the edge. He was apoplectic. He wanted a line to the head of the state. And he wanted a line into Kennedy's ear, John Kennedy. And he um, asked for that meeting. You know, his basic position was if the U.S. state is not going to step in and protect black life in places like Alabama, uh, again, there, there is no alternative but the kinds of insurrections that, that we actually later saw. It really began, I think, to convince them that white liberalism was never going to be 
his friend in the way he wished it would be. Um, and it also tells you why by the late 60s, people like Malcolm X are making more sense to him. Let's take a little time. I know it's getting long, but I, we definitely need to cover uh, sexuality in particular and, and probably the sort of, you know, exilic life, I suppose, right? Uh, the, the bulk of his writing was done overseas, done in Paris, Istanbul, and this is an important facet of his artistry, uh, the ability to do this work it seems to have needed to be done in another country. I think most of us who read Baldwin's life understand he, he goes to Paris partly because he's trying to figure out his sexuality. I mean, I quote a letter he wrote, you know, describing his life in America in the early 40s when he's still here. And he says, I didn't know if I was black or white, man or woman. Um, it was a profound kind of crisis of identity. Um, he wasn't entirely comfortable being out to his family, which and they lived just about a few miles away from from him in Greenwich Village up in Harlem. And I think Paris offered space for him to think and practice his sexuality more freely. He did he did take up lovers there. Um, he developed a, a very close uh, love relationship with a Swiss painter, uh, which I write about in the book. And then he writes Giovanni's Room. And then in the 1960s, he there is no queer liberation struggle, but you know I. I, I cite I cite an, uh, an interview he gave in the New York Post, I think, in 1964, and he's basically saying heterosexuality is such an oppressive force in this country. He says America is, is obsessed with the question of who someone sleeps with, and until it starts to kind of accept, you know, the possibilities of men loving men, uh, this country has no real way to kind of emancipate itself. And the homosexual question is like is like is like what we call the racial question. Nobody, no man and no woman, is precisely what they think they are. Love mm. is where you find it. And you don't know where you don't know where it will carry you. And it is a terrifying thing. Love. It is the only human possibility, but it's terrifying. And a man can fall in love with a man, a woman can fall in love with a woman. There's nothing nothing anybody can do about it. It's not in the province of the law. There's nothing you do with the church. And if you lie about that, if you lie about that, you lie about everything. And no one has a right to try to tell another human being whom he or she can or should love. And these are small moments, but they're big statements coming from uh, a prominent a prominent gay writer. Paulton was both in and out of the closet, you know. People who knew him knew. People who read his work carefully would know. But it wasn't something that he necessarily wore as a badge. It wasn't his, as he said, you know, I walk into a room, I'm black first and I'm gay second. And he kind of accepted that uh, that ranking for, for a long time. The book, Another Country, is an extraordinary novel. Listeners interested in knowing Baldwin's sexuality um, more, more deeply should read the book. It's, uh, it's a book about gay, straight, uh, and, and um, bisexual characters, some white, some black, who kind of try to work out a complex social world and social identities for themselves in the, in the late 50s and early 60s in New York City. And the book kind of proposes, as Baldwin said, you know, one of Baldwin's theories of sexuality was that, as he put it, you know, all of us are male and female. We're sort of two-sided. And the book explores that. He's really actually talking what we now call the language of non-binary sexuality, right? It's a profoundly ahead-of-its-time book and not read enough. And the title is also lovely because I think for, for Baldwin, to be queer, to be non-binary, to be, to be bisexual was to live in another country. 
there's many meanings of the book. And one of the really good works of scholarship on his sexuality, I think, is a book about the years he spent in, in Istanbul, which, um, again, for a lot of more, I don't know, casual uh, fans of Baldwin, very few people Oh, no, He's, he lived in and out of Istanbul for almost 10 years in the 1960s. And again, had romantic relationships there with Turkish men, involved himself in uh, theater productions as a director in Istanbul. The last thing I'll just say, in, in his later novels, just, just above my head and tell me how long the train's been gone, which people don't read with the regularity of the early books. They're wonderful books because he begins to have black, openly gay characters as protagonists for the first time. He begins to explore homoeroticism uh, in a really celebratory way on the page. And it's, it's, it's different from his early work. He's kind of unbound. And I think that had to do with a kind of unbinding of sexuality that was part of the, the world of the 1980s, which was the post-Stonewall and then, of course, the, the post-HIV world. He did lose one lover himself to HIV you know, in every single way. His life was marked by his sexuality, as as was his work. You do a nice nice job in the book of linking the eight, 1985 uh, essay "Freaks and the American Ideal of Manhood" to another country. So that essay in, in '85 back to a book from 1965, and how how as you say, you can sort of read it as a key to to what the novel's trying to do. Again, that's the Reagan era, a Reagan era essay. It's an a essay published in Playboy, which might have its own uh, problematic implications, maybe. It's an amazing essay. Um, probably his most elaborate nonfiction theory, theorization of queer sexuality, but very much influenced by both black feminism and black lesbianism. He, Audre Lorde, who I think a lot of people here will know, uh, sat down with Baldwin. They had this long conversation, which has now has been transcribed and recorded and is available to read, in which she really pushes him, you know, in the early 80s on his gender politics. And he says, look, you've done so much to write about black male life, straight black male life, queer life, gay black male life what what does what does something like black feminism mean to you what does black lesbianism mean to you and she pushes him in very productive directions black feminism helped allow baldwin to i think confront publicly and theoretically and in a more sophisticated way questions of gender generally speaking so highly recommend that piece this is interchange on wfhb our show is from another country and our guest is Bill Mullen, professor of American studies at Purdue University and author of a new biography from Pluto Press called James Baldwin, Living in Fire. I do want to talk a little bit about anti-Semitism because I think that you do a good job in, in the book on that as well. And, and Baldwin, I think, does an interesting job of thinking about um, Jews as white people. I was thinking about that uh, open letter to the born again. It's such a it's such a ridiculously powerful and yet so short piece that I was kind of shocked after I read it at how, at how much was in there. Um, you know, traveling from white to black to Christian to Palestinian, it's it's amazing. I spend a lot of time talking about Baldwin's journey. You know, from being in his youth in the 1940s, especially very positively influenced by the struggles of Jews in the United States. Um, Many of his close friends were Jewish. One of his best friends and editor, Saul Stein, was Jewish. And, and many of Jewish writers championed Baldwin in the 1940s. And um, he very much understood black and Jewish oppression as 
both being components of white supremacy in this country, right? And he, he understood that as kind of white Christian supremacy. And in the 50s and the 60s, of course, because he's interested in all kinds of liberation, um, he starts to pay attention to the Middle East more carefully. Like many uh, African-Americans, he was generally thought that the creation of Israel in 1948 was a good idea because it was seen by many as actually a national liberation struggle for a Jewish state after the Holocaust. But in the 50s and the 60s, he begins to see Israel and U.S. support for Israel in a slightly different way. He begins to see Israel as a kind of a proxy for American imperialism in the Middle East. He's studied the Algerian independence movement. He knows that in the Western world, the Arab and the Muslim is oftentimes seen as the other. By the late 1960s, you have the, the Six-Day War uh, in Israel, between Israel and Egypt and Syria. Uh, Israel basically you know, acts in his mind like an imperial power in the Middle East, you know, annexing the Golan Heights and the West Bank. And suddenly Baldwin is struck with this question, what about the Palestinians? Where did the Palestinians fit into this new power surge of U.S.-Israel uh, relationships in the Middle East. In the 70s, um, as Palestinian liberation kind of gets onto the map in the United States through the creation of the PLO and uh, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, Baldwin starts to pay close attention. And by the set, late 70s, he is, and, and by the way, he's very influenced here too by, by groups like SNCC and the Black Panther Party, which after 1967 also begin to see um, Israel as kind of a colonizing force see Palestinians as occupied people, right, in, in, within, the, within the, the, the state of Israel. So Baldwin starts to move. He starts to move in a more critical direction of, of Israel. And at the same time, he's struggling with anti-Semitism in the United States, which obviously he opposed profoundly. You know, he was against racism of all kinds. I talk about a moment in the late 60s when there definitely was an element of anti-Semitism, and I mean real anti-Semitism, that he saw creeping into uh, especially some quarters of the black power movement, and he wanted to reject it. Uh, and he wanted to say two things. He wanted to say, you have to stand against anti-Semitism always as an activist and as a thinker. At the same time, you need to be able to criticize imperialism. And that might include the actions of a country, a state like Israel. And you have to be able to understand that in a country like the United States, Jews who have been victims of history in so many ways have also become, in, in his mind, assimilated into a power structure which has allowed them some kind of white privilege. It's a very nuanced essay, to my mind, which is trying to separate itself from anti-Semitism in the black power movement, but also raise profound questions about how not just Jews, but how all uh, minority populations can sometimes become accomplices with the power structure. The essay I'm thinking about is called Blacks are Anti-Semitic Because They're Anti-White. The title itself would sort of stop a lot of people from reading it. I would encourage them to read it because at the end of the day, Baldwin is, is arguing that anti-Semitism and racism themselves are part of what I would call a divide and rule structure in the United States. Those people like Jews who are invited into the power structure, he says, also need to understand that that can itself produce new kinds of divisions, like divisions between Jews and blacks in places like Harlem. And, and here he was speaking about things that he had seen himself, you know, growing up in, in, in that community. When one takes the road to power, it seems to me that the white world proves this. One ends up where the white world is. What has happened in the country since World War II has not been because white people have suddenly changed their minds or become more generous or any of those things. What has happened is the power is beginning to shift. My concern 
is what will happen. What will happen when I, a Negro, no longer have you as my oppressor, but I'm responsible, altogether responsible, for what is happening to me, what, I, what kind of world I want. I think one of the things that is hard to convey sometimes is the way we talk about whiteness. You know, Baldwin throughout critiques America generally, you know, as uh, as something that has no, I was about to steal Gertrude Stein's words, right? That that whiteness has no there there. And it's an emptiness and it's a soullessness in a lot of ways. And, and, and that's whiteness. It's not necessarily all people and it's not color necessarily. It's, it's what this country is, though. Those of us in the university like to say, well, we, we understand that race is socially constructed now, right? Race is created by historical circumstances. And Walden was one of the first people, I think, to show us that whiteness is actually socially constructed. You know, and it's constructed through John Wayne's role in cowboy movies. And he wrote a screenplay about the life of Malcolm X. And he went to the film studio and they said, we really like this. We just want Malcolm X to be played by a white guy. He constantly paid attention to the effects of racism on white people. He argued constantly that ending racism will actually liberate white people, too, because he says it's a cancer. It destroys their souls. One of my favorite lines of his, he said, as long as you think you're white, there's no hope for you. And so that meant that whiteness could be unthought or at least it could be thought through. You know, and I think of a lot of his writing was was very much you know directed at white readers. Right. I mean, as you said, he published in Playboy. He published in The Nation. He published in the New Yorker magazine. These were white establishment publications. And so he attacked whiteness and white readers very directly to try to call out what, you know, what we would call their subject position. Not necessarily to talk about it as whiteness as privilege, but as white supremacy as a, as a social force that had to be dismantled. And he thought white people could participate in that dismantling. And I think that that's a way of understanding why some of, of his writing was focused on, you know, the white majority. He realized that you really weren't going to have a social change in this country of any magnitude unless you could get the majority to move. According to the polls now, about 70 percent of the people in the United States support these protests against police violence. And we see many parts of the country where the majority of people out in the streets now supporting Black Lives Matter are white. I think Baldwin would have been very pleased about that. That's our show. We'll close with Go Tell It on the Mountain, performed by Peter Tosh and the Whalers. Go tell it on the to Bill Mullen for joining me via Skype to discuss his latest book, James Baldwin, Living in Fire, published by Pluto Press in their Revolutionary Lives series. I'm Doug Storm. I produced this episode of Interchange. Kate Young is executive producer. You're listening to Bloomington, Indiana's community radio station, WFHB. Thanks for listening. Oh, tell it on the mountains To set my feet